So this passage, these first 10 verses of chapter 4, address the problem or the breakdown that exists between our desire for peace and the reality in which we find ourselves that our lives are oftentimes characterized by conflicts of some kind. And last week we saw that, that our external troubles are, are manifestations of an inward, internal disquiet. That's why he says that the, the fights that are going on among us are because of the war between our passions within us. And so we saw that James here is describing essentially the same reality that Paul does in, in Romans 7, where, where Paul likewise speaks of a war that's going on within us. The orientation here, though, in the book of James, as by way of reminder, is that the faith that saves, that is the faith that is to be modeled and demonstrated and characterized by God's people, is a living, vital, dare I say, visible faith. We really, really, really struggle to get beyond mere intellectual definitions of faith. Even when we define faith as knowledge, assent, and trust, that's an academic intellectual breakdown that, that we say has a, has a practical volitional aspect, but we really, really struggle with getting to the vibrant daily manifestation of core belief that is to be our faith. What really is important to you? What is really important to me? We can oftentimes usually see rubber meets the road what is important to a person by looking at two things, their calendar and their checkbook. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? That's just one way of seeing what's important to a person. But, but here James is addressing the fact that our struggles reflect the tension and the turmoil, the disconnect, the conflict, the open warfare that exists between competing desires deep within us. Not just the things we say that are important, but the things that prove to be important. This passage is, in effect, depicting the spiritual war in which we find ourselves. We oftentimes think of the spiritual war in which we find ourselves to be merely or simply us versus the devil or us versus some great spirit. But did you know that the spiritual war in which we find ourselves involves the new us versus the old us. That's why it's true that our three great enemies are not just the world and the devil, but also the flesh. There's a spiritual war going on, and what does that look like? I was talking to someone recently, and, you know, there's these passages that that talk about... uh, you know, the devil prowling around looking for a soul to devour. And of course, we immediately conjure up an image of a lion or something like that. And, 
Okay, what, what does that actually look like in practice? For the devil to be prowling around looking for a soul to devour. What, what, what does that mean? H- how do you construe spiritual warfare as taking place? Do, do you think that some cataclysmic astronomical event takes place? H- how do you think the devil works to entice you? Do you, do you imagine that, 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 that he causes an apparition to appear that just looks like a person that, 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 that entices you in some way? How do you think it works? Oftentimes, we are sucked in. Oftentimes, we are caught unawares precisely because we are ignorant of what it is that we're facing. The devil is a master impersonator. Have you seen a good impersonator who can really pull off the act of whoever it is they're impersonating? I mean, it's incredible. And, and the devil's so good that he can successfully pull off the impersonation of a very angel of light. Now, let me tell you something. The devil is so good that not only can he successfully impersonate an angel of light and present himself to you as, as the very messenger of the Lord, The devil is such a good impersonator that he can convince you it's you. You see, the devil will oftentimes come alongside and whisper in your ear, and you're not going to hear some some sweet angelic voice. You're going to hear your own voice. This is, oh, I can trust it because it's me. Oh, you really deserve this. Oh, it's right that you want this. Oh, it's good that you did this to that person because they had it coming. Oh, you're better than this. Oh, you're better than them. Oh, you're better than that stupid Spring Cypress Church. They're a bunch of losers anyway. Or conversely, when you're down, you think the devil's your friend? The devil will whisper in your ear and it'll be your voice you hear. You stink. You'll never amount to anything. You're worthless. You're ugly. You're stupid. And nobody likes you. And that's what you'll hear. And so the spiritual war in which we find ourselves has, has the devil attacking us and speaking to us and whispering in our ear primarily in this context by means of the opportunities afforded to him by our competing desires. The devil takes the desires that we have. Sometimes it's for good things. And the devil then twists them or, or he sees that we're twisting them on our own, and so then he comes and gives that twist the turbo boost. Some of you may be wondering, what, what's wrong with wanting the biggest house on the block? What's wrong with wanting to have more stuff than my neighbors? 
What's wrong with wanting my ideas to be imposed in the group because my ideas are right? What, what's wrong with all of this? Now, the devil, seeing our desire and understanding our propensity for promotion of self, takes all of our desires and just says, yes, yes, you want it. You deserve it. Or conversely, he taunts us by telling us we can't. He's a jerk. But he plays on the fact that our desires for the good life are fundamentally, oftentimes, nothing more than a demonstration of allegiance on our part to his system anyway. Remember how we talked how this world is not a neutral party. There are no free agents. You either are serving the causes of the kingdom of heaven or you're serving the causes of the dominion of Satan. And it speaks here in verse 4 about friendship with the world. And that if you want to be a friend of the world, you're making yourself an enemy of God. And so back to the question, what's wrong with my desires? What's wrong with me wanting the biggest house? What's wrong with me wanting the flashiest car? What's wrong with me wanting the retirement on the mountaintop overlooking Glacier National Park? Well, it's, it's not that those things are necessarily bad. It's that I've constructed or we've constructed an idea of the good life, of what it takes to feel like I've been successful, of what it takes to feel like I can truly be happy and truly be content. We've constructed an idea of the good life that is fundamentally worldly and is 100% in accordance with the systems and the principles of this world, which is to say, under the sway of Satan. There is no place in my heart, if, if, if for me I am so committed to this wonderful cabin overlooking Glacier National Park that, darn it, I will be miserable and angry and resentful and bitter if it does not come to pass. There is no place there for someone who can say, I have learned to be content with much or, 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 or nothing. And you know what? I don't care what happens to me. Just whether by life or by death, the Lord is glorified in my body. Do you, do, you, do you see how if I have this view that I can only be happy if, how that is fundamentally opposed to the mindset we are to have where whether I have scarcity or abundance, I'm content because of Jesus. And as I've reflected and thought through this book of James, I'm reminded about how so oftentimes we, we, we read in Philippians that he wants Jesus to be glorified in his body, whether by life or by death. He doesn't care, just Jesus. And, and how oftentimes our conflicts are, are led by desires that 
don't make much room for Jesus. And so then I'm miserable and grouchy and bitter and grumpy when they don't come to pass. And then I die and I'm told that Jesus is my consolation prize for dying? Is Jesus going to be your treasure or is he just a consolation prize for not getting the thing you really wanted? And is Jesus content, do you think, to merely be the consolation prize for dying or is he either your treasure or is he not nothing to you? Is he your everything or is he your nothing? Is he willing to just be a consolation prize? And I'm not so sure he is. And so we find ourselves in a state of wonder. What is wrong with me? And here it is. That our affections, our desires are at war within us. And thankfully... He doesn't leave us there. Thankfully, in verse 4, when he says that friendship with the world is enmity with God and that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, thankfully, what he does not mean, he does not mean that you are justified, you are righteous, you are, you are accepted in God's sight, and then you stop being so. No, he, he's speaking of two truths simultaneously. One, the Bible is very clear that there are some who think they're justified, who think they are in right relationship with God. But as this book has been laboring to show, if their presumption of, of right relationship with God is based upon mere assertion of propositions, they're deceiving themselves. Their allegiances are not proven by their lifestyles. But he's also pointing to those of us who are in the faith that there is a stark and utter inappropriateness for those of us who have been called out of darkness into the light there's an utter inappropriateness of us who were far off, who were enemies of God, who have now been made his beloved children, to then turn around, walk right back out the door, and wallow in the mud we were just cleansed from. Peter talks about this too, about forgetting that we've been cleansed from our sins. Paul talks about this, that, that we're not to submit again to a yoke of slavery having been set free. So what prevents this from happening? Am I just stuck in this cycle of sin and, and conflated desires that's going to leave me in conflict forever? Well, no. This is where God steps in in verse, verse 5. You see, you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. And if you're Christ's, then the salvation that he accomplished for you will be realized in you. And so he gives the Holy Spirit that you may be a living temple of the living God. And this Holy Spirit is jealous. 
This is not some impotent deity who will sit by while you chase other lovers. The Holy Spirit will protect, will defend, and will purify that which is his. Could it be, brother and sister, that this agitation of the Holy Spirit to cause friction within you, to help you see the need to mortify an area of sin in your life, could it be that that is the area of malaise that you're feeling? The unease, the dis-ease, the anxiety that you may be feeling, the internal discongruity, it could be because there's resonance there or dissonance caused by the Holy Spirit seeking to convict you of your double-minded desires, affections, and loyalties. Don't just listen to the voice in your head telling you, yes, yes, you're right, you're in the right. No, God approves everything you're doing. Don't believe it's your voice unless you've tested your voice against the words of Scripture. The Holy Spirit works in you. And he will create discomfort to lead you into purity. And principally, what does he do? How does he do this? Well, that discomfort, you need to see, even when it's, when it's discipline, You need to see it interpreted as verse 6 says, he gives more grace. The Holy Spirit's work in your life is an act and a display and an outpouring of grace. Because the Holy God has saved you and does not want nor will he let you remain where you are. That's so important to understand. He does save you irrespective of the condition you're in. But he does not leave you there. And right now you may have conflicting desires and emotions inside you. You you may have an errant notion of what constitutes the good life. Dare I say it may be idolatrous. But the Holy Spirit who resides within you will not let that go unchecked. And thanks be to God, he will work on us until we at the end of the day let go of that and say, not my will be done, but your will. And so he gives us grace. He gives us the grace we need to overcome things like personal weaknesses Maybe I'm driven by this this consuming desire that in modern parlance I would call a need to have the last word. And so it makes me come across as argumentative. He gives us the grace to overcome that over time. Maybe he gives us the grace to cover and face insurmountable difficulties and obstacles Maybe someone you love has died. And there's a hole in your heart that you're not sure will ever be filled or fixed. The Holy Spirit covers all. And he enables you to face even the darkest night up to and including your own impending demise. Maybe he 
needs to give you the grace to do the impossible. Maybe you can't imagine a world in which you give everything you have to go to the furthest regions of the world to preach to the dirtiest, most culturally backward humans and then die in obscurity. Maybe you can't imagine a world in which you see that as glorious. That's the grace to do the impossible. Or maybe, maybe you can't imagine a world in which quiet, timid, little old you finds a voice and stands up to defend the, the marginalized. Or maybe there's some sin that you think has so entangled you that there is just no way. The Holy Spirit gives more grace. He fights the alluring power of sin and temptation with the affection changing, altering, priority, reorienting reality of grace. And so what do we do? What do we do with this? Well, the principal thing, brothers and sisters, is found in verses 7 through 10. In verses 7 to 10, in verse 7, he makes an opening charge or an opening command. In verse 10, it's a closing. And what does he do there? He says, submit yourselves to God. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. And in the final verse, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, the key to experiencing the grace and having it appropriated in my life is to do the converse of what the sinful nature wants. Conversely from asserting the dominance of my will, I am to submit to the Lord's. And that looks like in three couplets, verses 7b and 8a, resisting the devil and drawing near to God. Now, that sheds light again on the nature of this spiritual conflict. Again, we're talking about desires, right? My desires. So then why is James talking about resisting the devil? Because he's speaking through and working through and, and tantalizing you through your desires. But notice how he says to confront or how to deal with the devil. In all the movies, the devil's big and scary. Okay? The devil is a mighty being. Even when he's presented as an angel of light, angels are very, very powerful. Okay? So, confronted by the devil, and, and by here it doesn't necessarily mean the person Satan, it means one of his agents. But resist him or his forces, resist the devil. But how do I, what do I do? And we oftentimes think that the key to fighting the devil is to not fight, but rather, in the words of Monty Python, to bravely run away. Or, or eh, cower and beg for mercy. Or Very rarely do we understand that when it says resist, it means stand up to. Kind of lean into it. I was just, <laughs> I was just watching uh, two days ago um, Happy Gilmore with my boys. And, you know, there's, there's the, the bully, Shooter McGavin, is picking on Happy Gilmore and, and uh, you know, getting in his face. And hap what's Happy Gilmore's response? He 
busts the beer bottle on. Let's go. When the devil's in your face, resist him. When the devil's talking in your ear, talk back. That's the impetus behind the counsel I so often give when I say, talk back to yourself. Because half the time, it's not yourself you're talking to. Resist the devil. And draw near to God. And the response of God is totally opposite from the response of the devil. Resisting the devil and drawing near to God, different words, but they both are the concept of of leaning in and moving toward. Resisting the devil, it's leaning in and moving in to do combat. Drawing near to God, it's moving in for a hug. You approach the devil and he recoils. You approach God and he moves towards you because God is relational and he wants you to know the peace of his presence. And then we're told to cleanse our hands which refers to the cessation of the activities of sin that we find ourselves in. If you're doing sinful things, stop it. That's, but then we're told to purify our hearts, you double-minded. Remember from the beginning of the book when he brings up the concept of being double-minded, it It refers to not having formed an allegiance, to trying to go through life like Switzerland. You you have to pick an allegiance. And so when it says purify your heart, it means become of singular devotion. Recognize that the stuff of this world is passing away. The stuff of this world is is not going to give you the good life. Look to the Lord, him and his purposes. Then and only then will you be like Paul, able to say that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, you are content. And finally, this this last bit is hard for us to understand. Um, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is that about? Well, it sounds like the stuff straight out of the prophets, doesn't it? it? And it is. Christianity is a joyful, upbeat religion because we have overcome with Christ. But what is he talking about here? He's talking about the propensity that we have to go through life flippant and silly. Not rightly assessing, not rightly appraising the gravity of the situation we are in. And so you see people just, just, just making a joke or, or not, not taking seriously What's going on around them? And he's saying, you double-minded people who think that God's okay with you half-heartedly following him, half-heartedly serving the world, it's not gonna work. Understand your situation. By making yourself a friend of the world, you are making yourself an enemy of God. There is gravity to that. And so, Snap out of it. Be alert. Be sober-minded. Reflect on the fact that all of life is a spiritual war. And once again, in this war, there's no free agents. There's no Switzerland. 
You're either serving the causes of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Satan. There's a, there is a sobering seriousness to reality when you understand what is going on and this is what he's calling us to. Stop being so silly. Of course, we are to have a good time. But as you're going through life, understand that there are serious consequences for every single thing. And take things seriously. So we humble ourselves before the Lord and leave the exaltation of us up to him. And it's in doing so that we find our freedom. So brothers and sisters, the path to peace rests in understanding the problem that our passions and desires are at war within us. It's in looking to and trusting in the Lord who resides within us, is jealous for us. It's in trusting in his provision of grace, of daily grace, the mercies that are poured out anew on us each morning. And it's then turning volitionally in view of that grace and turning away from the sin cleansing and purifying my heart so I'm undivided and walking in his ways, looking soberly and seriously around me. In so doing, I find great liberation from the captor that myself is to me. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is that you too, in this word and in all the pages of scripture, would see that your Savior loves you and wants you to live the abundant life Jesus has purchased for you, but the abundant life doesn't mean a a Gulfstream jet. The abundant life means contentment no matter what circumstances you are in. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. We thank you, O Lord, for the fact that Jesus has conquered the grave and that By his blood, he has purchased for us the gift of the Holy Spirit who now resides in us, doing the sanctifying work of militating and agitating against our sin, dispensing grace, the grace we need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to overcome our fears, to overcome our doubts. Lord, grant that we would not resist you but rather that we would lean into you for a hug. Grant that rather than throwing up our hands in defeat before the devil, that we would step up and be prepared to go. Lord, grant that in all things we would live as befits your children, live as befits your soldiers, live as befits kings or princes and princes of heaven. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.